Hi, I'm Lori Feathers, a bookstore owner and writer in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Sam Jordison, a publisher from Norwich in the UK. And this is Across the Pond. A podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic. All right, let's dive in. Hello, Sam. Hey there, Laurie. We are in for a treat today. At least we think it's a treat, and we hope our listeners do too. It's the holiday season, and we are going to talk about a very special short story, James Joyce's The Dead. Yeah, that's right. And so you suggested this as a a story for the holidays, which I completely saw right away. And then I also thought, oh my God, (laughs) it's The Dead by James Joyce. (laughs) How are we gonna are we gonna do this? And the big question is, of course, how deep are we gonna go? Because you know, people have written a lot about the dead for very good reason, because it is such an extraordinary story, and also because James Joyce is such an extraordinary writer, and this is really one of his first great masterpieces. And I kind of thought, uh, well, you know, we shouldn't go too deep and we should really just try and skim the surface, otherwise this show will be crazy. But of course, even skimming the waters of the dead is, <laughs> will take us to some pretty dark, deep places because those are those are some serious... Sorry, I've lost control of this metaphor. How <laughs> 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 are we going to keep this in my gut? Especially... <laughs> I think we James... should keep this in. Oh, I can see James Joyce just being shaking his head like, no... <laughs> Don't. <laughs> All right, but you this get is not it. practice. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is a this is a deep one, and there's a lot to say, and it's extraordinary. So let's just hope we can do it justice. Okay, so open up the story here for us, Sam. Tell us where where we are, what's happening. Okay, so this is a story in which, in a way, nothing much happens. Some people arrive at a party leave a party and if you wanted to you could leave it at that though of course that would be a terrible mistake because it's also a story where everything happens just a huge huge amount and Joyce as I keep saying takes us to some extraordinary places so it starts off and we're in the head of a character called Lily who we're told is the caretaker's daughter, who has run off her feet with helping guests into a party that Miss Kate and Miss Julia are holding on. A date significantly, most people think this is the 6th of January. So it's, it's after New Year's Eve and it is the Feast of the Epiphany. And we're going to have to get back to Epiphany. So I've put a little marker there already. The Epiphany. Um, it, yeah. It's the Feast of the Epiphany and there will be an Epiphany. Yeah, more than one. <laughs> and uh, so here we are arriving at the party. The guests are coming in and among them are Gabriel Conroy and his wife. And Gabriel arrives full of confidence and kind of bonhomie. He's pretty smartly dressed, looks like he's a member of the prosperous middle classes. He makes some patronizing jokes about how long his wife takes to dress to explain his lateness because the two aunties, Kate and Miss Julie, have been getting worried about how long he's been taking to arrive. And he talks to Lily in what we're told is a friendly tone that she doesn't much like. He makes a joke about her getting married and she replies with amazing bitterness. And 
he colours up, and it's not the first, the last time that night that he's gonna. We're gonna see some colour in his cheeks from embarrassment and perplexity. We then follow Gabriel upstairs, where the party is in full swing, and we spend most of the rest of the night in his head. He's anxious because he has to give a speech for the sisters. Doesn't know how to pitch it, and how many of his learned illusions that he's thinking of, with reference to the poet Browning, for instance, he doesn't know how many of those the audience are going to get. And there, you've got to think. <laughs> probably a problem that Joyce himself had Um, but one you know he really stopped to worry about that by the time he was writing Ulysses uh, or maybe just leant right into it anyway as it is now Gabriel is is worried about pitching things right for his audience and meanwhile all kinds of other things are going on and quite often the story gets likened to an opera because there's there's moments of bustle and noise and entire choruses of people who are kind of speaking at once and in turn and lots of back and forth. But there are also these quieter, more focused areas. And alongside that, music is a constant source of discussion. And it's also something that's happening. So people are performing their party pieces and we'll have to come back to this as well. Meanwhile, we we learn all sorts about Kate and Miss Julia, the sisters who are holding the party. And they're presented always smiling and kind of happy, having fun. And they're anxious about people arriving and things going well. But they're mainly seen with people complimenting them and they're laying on this really nice feast. It's very convivial. But somehow Joyce also generates this sense of melancholy about their lives, even as things are going well. He kind of makes you feel sad for them. And there's also an anxiety about a drunk called Freddie Malins, who... Again, he he actually at the party has a whale of a time, but <laughs> we, you know, we learn a lot about the anxieties other people have about him and the fact that he is a, a pretty hopeless alcoholic. And there's something about the way he behaves at the party and that just leaves us feeling hollow inside again. And as I was saying, there's a, the singing and performances. Someone called Mary plays a boring, complicated piece of music that no one <laughs> listens to. Can and, I just interject here once? Yeah. It's amazing to me. I, I know this is taking place more than 100 years ago, but all of these people are extremely musical. I mean, pretty much everyone that attends this party just like breaks out into like a piano solo or singing and they're all dancing. I don't know. It just seems like so very different than the way we have holiday parties today. I mean, I can't remember a time when I went to a holiday party and just pretty much everyone there was exhibiting some kind of musical, I guess, talent. And they're not really saying that anyone in this story really is a crummy singer, but it's it's just interesting how central music is to this scene. Yeah, I mean, it does feel different. I suppose the thing I should have explained earlier on is that it is a musical house. So the sisters, they work you know, they teach people music and they have a, a tenor, pretty famous in Dublin singer who will will also have to come back to. I'm sorry, I keep parking things and saying we'll get to it. So it is that kind of household. But even so, you're absolutely right. It does feel odd to us, maybe, that this is the way that the, the party goes, that people do their little performance. And it's much more live action, I suppose, and much more performative than what we'd expect nowadays. Yeah. So on we go anyway. So Gabriel pretty soon is involved in another 
another pretty awkward conversation with a, a Miss Ivers who comes up to him and says, I have a crow to pluck with you. And she criticizes him for writing for the Daily Express, which she calls a rag. And she calls him a West Briton. And she is a fairly zealous Irish nationalist, which we get the impression that Gabriel is not. You know, he obviously has some sympathy for this because she makes him feel very uncomfortable, but he is not into this ultra-nationalist zealotry. And she kind of, she criticizes him for going on holiday abroad rather than going to the Arran, the west of Ireland. Beautiful place, but, you know, quite isolated, quite a tough place to go on holiday compared to where Gabriel wants to go. You know, he wants to go on a nice cycling tour of France. And she criticizes him for wanting to speak French rather than what she calls his own language. But, you know, he says he doesn't actually speak Irish. So that leaves Gabriel with another uncomfortable feeling, but he perks up again and he gives his speech, largely praising Irish hospitality and the sisters and everyone who hears it, we're told they're smiling and laughing and it's kind of a success, except for Miss Ivers, who's gone off and Gabriel's not quite sure if she stormed off because of him or she just left anyway. And that's kind of, it's left in the air, but he does the speech. It's okay. They all sing for they are jolly gay fellows and people start to leave and the action moves out into the cold hallway the stairs that they came up to get to the party there's more jollity but as things quieten down it's also noticed that Gabriel's wife is listening to some plaintive singing and the tenor who I mentioned earlier who's been at the party is singing an old folk song of grief the lass of Orchrim and Gabriel's wife is captivated so we have this quiet beautiful moment moment and we get a few lyrics of the song and then things move on we move out from the noise and light of the party first onto the quayside uh, outside this house in Dublin where there's a statue of Dan O'Connell covered in snow then back to the Gresham Hotel with Gabriel and his wife which is quite a posh place you get the impression you know a good place for an up-and-coming middle-class couple like these two are to stay and we're told that the electric lights have failed leaving Gabriel and his wife in a darkened room which plenty of critics have said is kind of the tomb of their marriage. And why do they say that? Because, well, Gabriel, who has been admiring his wife all night, I should say, and happy to be with her, you know, keeps looking at her and thinking how graceful and lovely she looks and how proud he is of her. And now he feels he's going to get lucky. But <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately for Gabriel, you know, she just isn't interested. Brad is in a totally different state of mind than Gabriel. Yeah, that's right. Greta is, it turns out when he, he manages to get an explanation out of her, is thinking about her old lover who the song reminded her of, this lover from uh, when she grew up in the, the west of Ireland who died for her essentially he came he was ill and came to see her before she was leaving in the the cold and rain and it's very haunting we're left with this moment where gabriel is left thinking oh maybe that's that's what love is that's a kind of love going through this kind of sacrifice and also he's realized and here is one of the big epiphanies that his wife has this history that he didn't really know about and this past love that maybe we're made to think he doesn't measure up to. Which leads on to the incredible final paragraph of the story, which we'll get to. But for now, there's there's so much more to talk about as well. So let's try and dig into some of this stuff and then we'll get to the end again. Yeah, a few things, I guess. One is 
you you touched on it, Sam, when you were describing the plot. There's this wonderful kind of cacophony going on where, you know, people are bustling around. Lily, it, the maid, is trying to help people on and off with their coats. The sisters are upstairs trying to help the women kind of fluff out their hair and everything after coming in from the cold. There's people dancing and talking about who they're dance partner is going to be for the next dance. There are singing, there's music, there's a table that's groaning with food and a wonderful kind of carving ceremony where Gabriel shows off his carving skills and gives everyone a big plate full of food. And through it all, we see these shifts and points of view that Joyce is giving us. You know, you're right. It's We are in the, the mind space of Gabriel for probably a majority of the story, but at least, especially in the beginning, there's a lot of shifting between Lily and then one of the sisters and then, you know, maybe someone who's going to be singing and someone that has to look after and make sure that Freddie is not like too drunk or drinking too much. So it really goes back and forth. And I think the stylistic things that Joyce does with the story really work well with the setting. And it all kind of threads together and is woven into something that really, you kind of feel the rhythm of it. Yeah, really. And it's really impressive just from that first moment where when you, you start with Lily, the caretaker's daughter, and it just feels so natural that you move up the stairs with someone else to give the, the action goes around and it, yes. and it feels like a camera moving or something except you know a camera that also shows you the world from the inside of people's heads as well as what they're seeing and in fact this is you know perhaps one of the reasons why the film of the dead which we haven't mentioned yet there's a john huston film of it which is ex- just brilliant and even though you don't get all the subtleties of this incredible story that film is well worth watching and you know that has that thing of just you're following the camera around and now you're focused on this and it all swings around really quite naturally and i suppose the the other thing to say about this is that we get a really interesting overview of a particular part of dublin society these middle classes some of them doing well some of them you kind of feel like the sisters who are hosting the party maybe their lives are a bit more precarious and you know there are tensions there's the nationalism versus the less strident nationalism and there are a few jokes about Protestants and Catholics, but it's this genial, prosperous world. And it's really interesting that this, and maybe we should talk about this now, in fact, that this story is the culmination of Dubliners. So it's the final story in James Joyce's collection of stories called Dubliners. And it's also the last one he wrote. And most of the other stories talk about people who are perhaps in a a more working class parts of Dublin and whose lives are are quite not so comfortable and not quite so easy. And, you know, you get the impression that food is harder to come by for a lot of them and conflict and violence are closer to where they are. And it's this extraordinary book. And, well, there's so much to say about it. Where should we start? I mean, I guess one of the things, (laughs) the things that James Joyce kind of said about it. So he finished writing The Dead in 1907, but the book only came out in 1914 and only came out then really because another book of his, The Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, was being serialised and getting a lot of attention and publishers finally took the risk of putting this book out. And it had this difficult publication history for all kinds of reasons, but partly because James Joyce really refused to, to do what publishers wanted and didn't want to change things in it that they thought were difficult. So 
there's lots of really potentially libelous things, really. You know, there are people who can recognize themselves and the Dublin is brought to life so realistically and with such accuracy relating to streets and places. You know, it felt almost too real for publishers and they were worried that they would get sued. And there are stories about prostitution and, you know, about drink. There's stories kind of making fun of Catholic doctrine and papal infallibility gets a good kind of doing over. And so all kinds of difficult things, potentially, perhaps, although as it turned out, there wasn't so much of a stink when it finally did come out. But James Joyce, in amongst all this, when he was struggling to get the book out, he wrote to a publisher saying, I seriously believe that you will retard the course of civilization in Ireland by preventing the Irish people from having one good look at themselves in my nicely polished looking glass. So yeah, <laughs> he really thought he was doing Irish civilization a service with this book that was showing things as they are, I suppose, you know, when you're when you're James Joyce and as they were from our point of view, this new kind of story really that really spoke about Dublin life with a new accuracy and honesty. And, you know, he said that that meant that the stories would have the odour of ash pits and weeds and old offal. <laughs> Everything he says is so great. And, um, and, you know, that there were true people and true, to, you know, there was tr real truth in it was one of the things he was trying to get across. And actually, you know, I just said that there wasn't too much of a stink, but some critics hated it. And an unsigned reviewer in the Athenaeum magazine said, for instance, that it would be better buried in oblivion. But of course, they didn't get their way because over time it's come to be accepted as one of the greatest short story collections of all time and the dead, the greatest story in it. And it's the culmination. Anyway, I'm finally getting to my point. You know, that this story is the culmination of everything that had gone before in Dublin. There's all these different stories about different aspects of life in Dublin and, you know, showing these quite sordid details sometimes, stories about childhood, conversations about religion, Irish nationalism, music, the geography of the city that we see in the dead. All of those things have kind of come before in the stories in Dubliners. And now they get their, their final com culmination in this story. So it's something, it's remarkable as a, a final story in that collection. But of course, you also can take it alone and it stands alone. Yeah, I want to I want to zero in on the relationship between Gabriel and Greta. Mm. Do you I I'll just ask it simply. Do you think Gabriel's a jerk? <laughs> oh. Well, I mean Is he pompous? Is does he have like is he not kind of intuitively in check with his wife that he's you know, busy thinking about his speech and whether he's too intelligent for the common folk to get what he's going to talk about. And he seems very kind of self-absorbed through most of the party, even though he is kind of interacting with other people. And then he finally notices, oh, well, my wife's on the staircase. She hasn't come down yet to put on her coat and she's crying. And then, you know, finally, when they get to the hotel, she tells him why she's crying. But I don't know. I, I can't say that, that I, <laughs> I probably don't think Gabriel's a jerk, but I do think that what is most sad about this story might not be that Greta doesn't consider Gabriel the love of her life. Rather, it's this guy that you know, died for her years earlier, but that they just have these very misaligned expectations and lack of communication. 
Oh, there's a lot in there, isn't there? Um, I th- first of all, I'm not entirely sure that we have to believe that Gabriel isn't the love of her life. You know, she had this other love, but she doesn't say, you know, I don't love you. And it doesn't mean she hasn't, you know, she doesn't have a different kind of love for Gabriel. Maybe, although we're certainly made to think that Gabriel is is worrying about that now. As to whether he's a jerk, I mean, in a way he is. <laughs> you know, so you know lily the caretaker's daughter just kind of is kind of offended by him and you know she sees his pomposity right away and likewise you know yeah he doesn't read greta particularly well for all his regard of her you know he's admiring her and looking at her the whole night but he's not properly empathizing with her and seeing where she's coming from and sympathizing with her which is why he so catastrophically misreads her mood at the the end of the story and the end of their night but i have a lot of sympathy for him as well so yeah he's doing his best all the way along i think so even with lily the caretaker's daughter who he patronizes so much he's trying to be nice to her and you know he tries to give her some money for instance and hoping that will be a nice thing for her and he really tries to you know yeah part of the worry his worry about the speech is that he people won't like him and will think he's a, a bit of a pompous fool so he even has this concern but he also really wants it to go well for the sake of the sisters and he's really trying to make things go nicely for them and you know he really enjoys later on he carves the goose and you know that's he takes great pleasure in you know giving people their food and making them happy and the thing that i think really redeems him throughout is that he loves his wife and you know maybe it's slightly misplaced in some ways and he doesn't properly understand her and doesn't properly connect with her but he really i mean he loves her which is redeeming and it's very touching that portrait i think I think it's interesting what you mentioned about when they go back to their room at the hotel and the the lights have gone out and the the porter offers them a candle and Gabriel refuses it and this image of the tomb of their marriage basically and it makes me wonder and maybe I'm just being way too negative but I mean was their marriage already a tomb or have they just entered a new phase where there's a dark period now in their marriage or will their marriage ever be the same these are all like the the wonderful questions that you're left with at the end of the story yeah you are left with those questions but there there are other questions as well certainly i kind of want to put a more optimistic reading forward as well perhaps out of sympathy for for old gabriel but I, I, want, I do wonder about this, if it really is the end of their marriage. I mean, that is certainly one possible outcome. But we don't, you know, there aren't harsh words spoken between them even. And, you know, one of the last things uh, Greta says before she falls asleep, uh, which we'll get to, um, is that, you know, that Gabriel is really generous and, you know, she gives him a, a kiss and okay, she's had this this other lover and okay, she's not interested in him tonight. But it, it doesn't mean that they can't go forward, I don't think. Maybe they'll just have a more mature relationship afterwards. And I know it's sometimes, well, nearly very often wrong to bring in too much biography of the author, but the story she tells was a story apparently that James Joyce's wife, Nora, told to him about oh. an old lover and maybe it made him anxious. But taking a long view, you know, they had a long marriage. And 
perhaps not you know an unconventional marriage in some ways but um they yeah, stayed together I, those two so there was a future for them and maybe we can read a future for gabriel it's not as though i think when i say the end of the marriage it's not like today I, these two are not going to get divorced right i mean it's it's ireland <laughs> in the early 1900s um <laughs> but definitely you're left with the sense that maybe things will never be quite the way that they were before this revelation this epiphany yeah that's really true yeah, and that's that's one of the haunting things about the story is that somehow throughout the whole story, in fact, you get the sense that nothing's going to be the same for anyone. And you get the sense, in fact, to come to the title, that they're all going to be dead sooner or later. <laughs> <laughs> and that, uh, you know, time is overtaking these characters, even as James Joyce is, is really fixing them in place in this remarkable way and bringing them to life so vividly. He's also killing them. Okay, well, with that happy note, Sam, why don't you close us out by reading the um, the final paragraph of this wonderful story? Okay, okay, yeah, let's let's do this. Oh, this amazing paragraph. I mean, do we need to pre- we need to preface it perhaps a little bit? That um, so Greta, as we said, and Gabriel, they've had this all difficult discussion and revelation, and Gabriel has had this epiphany that things weren't quite as he assumed they were and Greta has then fallen asleep and we're left again inside Gabriel's head and why don't I just come in with the the last paragraph and instead of blaring on in my own words and see what everyone makes of this a few light taps upon the pane made him turn to the window it had begun to snow again he watched sleepily the flakes silver and dark falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, falling softly upon the bog vallon, and further westward, softly falling into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling too upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury lay buried. It lay thickly, drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate, on the barren thorns. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. Wow, what an ending. Yeah, it's extraordinary. It's Um, perfect. (laughs) It's just perfect. Well, Sam, it was fun talking with you about this wonderful short story and really encourage our listeners. Uh, I'm sure most of them have read this before, but it's always worth another read, especially this time of year. Yes, it is. Yeah. And then another read after that. And then you can plunge into the Joyce literature and go even deeper. (laughs) All right, Sam. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Laurie. Hello, Across the Pond listeners. We're really happy today to share with you our return guest. I think this might be the first return guest for Across the Pond, Robin McLean. Robin was here a little while ago, maybe a year or so, to talk about her debut novel, Pity the Beast. And she's returning today to discuss with us her short story collection, Get Him Young, Treat Him Tough, Tell Him Nothing. It's the 2022 Republic of Consciousness Prize for the United States and Canada nomination from the wonderful publishers at And Other Stories. Welcome, Robin. 
Thank you, Lori and Sam. I'm very excited to be back on Across the Pond again. The first, I'm glad to know I'm the first repeat guest. That's very cool. A huge honor, I'm sure, for you. <laughs> it is. Robin, why don't you get us started by reading a little bit from one of your awesome short stories in this collection? Sure. I'll, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, the story called True Carnivores. And in this story, there's a, an auntie that basically kidnaps her young nephew at a young age. And the story takes place over his childhood as they cruise around America, which is sort of what the collection is, is a cruise around America. So I'm going to read now. This is when Theo, the kid, starts figuring out what's going on. They camped at Bannock and toured the old courthouse. She explained horse thieves and capital punishment, lynchings and Robin Hood. He could hardly believe it. Jupiter was low in the sky. They drank hot chocolate. They sent a card to his mother from the Little Bighorn, where warriors had crouched behind rocks with arrows. Theo studied the address and dropped the card in the slot. Are we bankers or something? He said, since they did business in banks in various states. She explained safe deposit boxes, hedge funds, offshore accounts, white-collar crime. She kept the cash in a sack beneath a spare in the trunk. She kept the keys no matter how he begged to hold them. They drove up into the mountains. They turned in at every Lewis and Clark pullout, where the Corps of Discovery almost starved, where the Corps of Discovery had gone without water, where the Corps of Discovery had trudged through chest-deep snow behind their Shoshone guide, old Toby. How could they really trust him, Theo said on a sandy bank. He kicked a charred log from an old fire. They roasted the horses one by one. He got back in the car. They camped on the lolo. Trees drowned out highway noises. The ridges stood steep and dark. The fire was warm and good. Wind moved slowly in the top branches. Sacagawea saved them, yes, Auntie said. But she was kidnapped as a girl. I know, Theo said. We're kidnappers, smallpox spreaders. Theo cooked a hot dog and a stick. When you were little, Theo said, who was faster, you or mom? I was faster. But, he said, she broke both legs once. Yes, but I was faster before that. The trees were black and close over the tent. The moon tipped on the east ridge. My mom's tuna casserole's really good. My tuna casserole's excellent, too. I'll make it at the next motel. The fire snapped on Theo's grease. My mom's tuna casserole is the best, he said. No one can beat it. A rabbit appeared in the firelight, big ears turning. Do we have enough money, he said. Your mom made sure we had plenty. What if the bank with our money caught fire? It's in a computer, she said, not a building. What if the computer got a virus? They'd fix it. What if the tech guys got the plague, he said, spitting up blood, arms falling off. Bats banked and dipped around the smoke. The tech guys would come from the next town over. His hot dog split down the side. He pried it into the bun. What if every town got the plague, he said. All America, corpses all over. They'd fly helicopters in from Canada, she said, full of tech guys. What if the whole world got the plague? He ate, coyotes yipped, the moons hoisted over the east edge and stood there. So that is one bad auntie in that story. 
And um, mm, yeah. I, love, I love the way you drew out <laughs> the, the rivalry with her sister or or maybe from what we see in the story, it's kind of a very one-sided rivalry because we, we just get the auntie's point of view on this. But she's really desperate to get even is one of the things I wanted to pick up on because mm-hmm. I suppose that goes back to the book we talked about with you before, Pity the Beast, and um, this desire for revenge. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about what it is that, that draws you to that as a topic, first of all. Um, well, first of all, I want to say that one of my very close friends who was involved with all these stories he i just got a, an email from him a couple of weeks ago because he has been reading the reviews and stuff and he said i cannot believe that everybody's responding to the auntie and that story that way because theo is obviously having much better life with the auntie <laughs> than he's having now it's, it's been universally i mean i i'm with you sam i'm with you but it, it, it's it, to me I think I worry too if it's totally one-sided. Like the auntie is I want I want all my characters to be somewhat complicated and then when you put such a obviously evil thing, an obviously bad thing, how do you write the story so that it's believable in some way? That's mm. probably the challenge of that story. But I think, you know, as as you know from my discussion with you about the novel, I'm really interested in people doing bad things and I think that the range of truly potent motivations is kind of, you know, we we kind of know them all. They're sort of biblical or gigantic. And um, sibling rivalry is kind of a big one. And I feel like that story utilizes sibling rivalry in a big way, as does Pity the Beast. But uh, I don't know if I told you this before, but like Pity the Beast started out the, the sisters in that story aren't, they were not, they weren't sisters. They were just two women who knew each other. But I feel like it becomes more charged and I guess in some ways believable if they're siblings because sibling rivalry is, I, I don't know, it's a very, very strong motivation. And it's complex within this idea of revenge or the idea of hatred or the close connection between love and hatred to does that answer it yeah it's really interesting about the the sibling rivalry because in a way i guess it means you have less to explain because you know as readers we know exactly we feel it almost inside us that you know that feeling uh you know it's so familiar the idea of the rival siblings and the the darkness of that as well and the complication it all it comes pre-packaged in a way and i mean it it gives you well, I'm putting putting words in your mouth here. I, I guess they do stop me if I'm if I'm going too far. But it, it means you know there, there's a lot for you to explore within that and to, to bring out in the stories. And I think that was particularly effective in this one. And maybe it's part of the reason that it's so dis- discomforting. And um, <laughs> you know, it's quite it's a funny story, but it's upsetting as well, well right? <laughs> well, and I think you know one of the things that I I. I've thought a lot about how writers cheat. And, you know, I lived in Alaska for a long time. And, Lori, I might have gotten into this when we met at your at, in Terrabang. Is, uh, I, I used to think when I lived in Alaska that you can't really write about Alaska because it's, it's cheating. Because people are so intoxicated by, if you just put a bear in the story, I feel like, oh, people just fall for it. But at, at the end of the day, you do cheat. And 
And so sibling rivalry is this fast track into a deep emotional state that then you can play around with it. Mm -hmm. And as far as the disturbing nature of that story, one of the things I found while I've been traveling around with this collection is that the disturbing nature is varies from story to story. Because I know, Lori, you were really disturbed by Judas Cradle, I think. And as you go around, in some ways, if you write a collection of short stories versus a novel, you you kind of don't want to hear that only one story is freaking people out or or moving people or exciting people. You want it to be different from place to place. And so far it has, you know, what people will say, oh my God, that one is the most freaky has been quite various. And so that makes me happy. If if one of them got no love, I guess, or (laughs) freak out, that would make me sad for that story. Let's let's tell the listeners, Robin, about Judas Cradle a little bit and what happens in that story Mm -hmm. now that we've kind of perked their imagination about it. So in Judas Cradle, it's the only story in the collection that takes place actually, or sort of the main setting is outside the United States, but it's an American tourist who's traveling in a very old European city and is going on a tour to a very old castle. And we see her engaging with the culture there or the scene as a tourist who wants to see many things about the castle, but she definitely wants to go to the torture chamber. (laughs) And she falls prey to a a bandit basically in the city. And the bandit, I hope, explores the parts of this American and maybe an American psyche or maybe just a human psyche that is able to see pain and suffering as entertainment, which of course for me is a very great interest of mine is how do you see pain and suffering as entertainment? And then I guess, how do you write about that without it being, I guess it being entertaining, but also a valid and deep examination of that part of us. I hope that's what the story (laughs) explores. It's a very unsettling story. I'd encourage Mm -hmm. everyone to read it and I don't know. It it sends shivers up my spine every time I just even think about it. But in that regard, all of the stories I find interesting in terms of just kind of following the arc of the characters from the start of the story until the end. And I'm wondering, do you, what's your feeling about trying to get the characters at a better place by the end of the story or a different place or a reconciliation inside of them or redemption. Do you think a lot about that, those kind of things, or are you just kind of exploring the, the characters kind of iteratively as you're writing? I would say that I'm uninterested in redemption. It's just not what I'm writing for. I feel that from a stylistic perspective and a, from a subject matter perspective, I would say I'm writing only for myself, something that I am trying to explore myself. What I hope my writing does or the writing style does is it does something to the reader. I'm way more interested in what happens to the reader or to me, to me first, and then the reader than I am to the character. And I I just don't operate from a story perspective on some... I mean, you have to think about with fiction, you have these sort of mechanisms that I think are natural to the human psyche that you have to operate with time, character, action, causation, scene, dialogue, all those things that make it recognizable to the this natural process, which I believe humans are 
narrative creatures, we operate with a narrative, which is what I'm doing. I am writing to try to understand something myself. And then hopefully something happens experientially to the reader, which is why I don't want to freak the reader out exactly. I don't plan on it being upsetting, but I want it to be an experience for the reader as I want it to be an experience for me. So I guess I leave the characters a bit high and dry, possibly, but that's not necessarily just to be mean, but that's just they're not. That's not it's my really main goal. It's interesting to hear you, you talking about these narrative conventions, because one of the things that struck me about those stories is that often they end up in very different and unexpected places certainly you know i set out reading the story about the, the guy who's stuck in the tree maybe you could tell us a bit about that in a minute um but he's there and kind of... <laughs> wait he's more than stuck in a tree he's stuck on a, cl- a, okay, a tree yeah, well, on maybe a we cliff. should clear that up but he's stuck on a tree on a cliff and in peril of his life and he's there for a, a long time and we're really close with him for a long time but that's i don't want to give too much away but this that story did not finish with the kind of resolution that most most stories like that you'd expect i think by the end of it i was i felt like even though geographically i was actually in the the same kind of place emotionally it had taken me somewhere very different and in terms of resolution it had taken me somewhere very different yeah that's a very i would say if i were to read that story without being the one who wrote it i would say that was a definitely an unconventional ending i hope that people think well everyone's going to respond to the stories differently but it's a it's a daring way to move the story and so for me it was a very exciting way to write the story can i do this is something that is a kind of a constant interest for me. What what can I do and what does it feel like to do that? Will will the some some readers will not tolerate the ending of that story. As has always been the case with my work is that my endings or the way the stories move are not traditional within this narrative idea that I've been talking about, but if they work for some people, then mm. I'm quite excited about that. It feels to me in some ways that narrative... I, I was thinking about this because I was watching a TV show recently because I don't watch a lot of TV. And I was thinking some of these shows to me are very, very entertaining on a strictly causation, you know, step by step, this is how it's happening. But it has absolutely no attempt at conveying meaning at all. And I feel like that's sort of where we have arrived culturally where where meaning is not required in narrative at all. Whereas if you think about myth or fairy tales or the great books that I have found edifying in my life, meaning is central. You have to have it. So to have arrived culturally a place where meaning is no longer necessary at all, that's interesting to me as a storyteller. And then I reject that for myself. For myself, I don't want to do that. So the shift in the meaning at the end of that, or the shift in the mood at the end of the story, I would say, Sam, what does that feel like to you on a gut level? And I would guess that you would have an answer for that and that I would be interested in what that answer is. And if I achieve some kind of experiential reaction, even if it's no, Robin, you cannot do that. (laughs) I hope... 
I think that's, I would say, read it again and see if that, not that you should, but uh, is it possible that somebody could accept that ending? It that does makes make sense. sense. And now I'm trying to think how to how to explain my reaction, which I think was surprise to, to a certain extent. And again, unease, I guess. And this feeling, well, I'm trying to carefully say this because i don't want to ruin the the surprise for other people but like, sure can we say that thing you know quite a few things are left hanging and other things are as well. <laughs> literally and figuratively <laughs> you know you don't get that there is a definite feeling that, that some something's happened but it's you know it's not where i was expecting to be and yeah it's it's exciting as a reader in a way you get a kind of you know you feel a stomach lurch like you've plunged into something you weren't you know, your feet have been taken out from under you. Well, that's that's good enough for me because I feel that I want to read things that I have a visceral reaction to. That's what I want. I want reading to me way more exciting than a movie or a TV show because I believe that the, in this mysterious process, which is writing something to a reader that we, re, we meet each other in the middle, it's the most phenomenally exciting thing that your mind can partake in and but it takes some work. It takes some effort. It's not a passive activity. And so for me, if I can, I, because you have so many people will tell you that they just want to read in order to go to bed at night, which, you know, that's cool, but that's not what I'm into. Clearly not. <laughs> that's not what I'm into at all. <laughs> And I think about, you know, if I have a experience that's bothering me in real life, if I return to some helpful piece of art, it's some writer that wrote it a couple hundred years ago or 10 years ago or two years ago, but is helping me to live, but to, to kind of write something that might be jarring that way to another person. It just cannot be, I don't know. It just has to, I have to go deeper down into myself for something like that in order to hope to convey something, a reaction like that to another person. Mm. And is it jarring to you when you write it? And are you kind of surprising yourself with where the story ends up or have you, you planned it out all along? No, it's always, I mean, that's how I know. If it's jarring to me, then that's how I know. And and the question is, from a craft perspective, so that story that you're talking about, Cliff Ordeal, is the longest story in the collection. It's a very long story. To keep somebody reading that long is where pretty much nothing is happening. Somebody is stuck in a tree on the side of a cliff. That's a challenge. That's a challenge for a writer. And you, you have to figure out how, 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 how do you achieve that? So I, that's why I'm always thinking about that kind of stuff. And I'm much more interested in how than what. And so, yeah, you for me, writing, writing you know when the story is done because you feel it in your body that the thing is done you feel a big reaction you might not be, be able to sleep afterwards even if you've been awake for a long time so yeah that's that's how I roll I wanted to explore a little bit what you said about kind of how you think about the evolution of storytelling and whether or not we need stories to have a meaning or a, a takeaway anymore. And it reminded me a little bit about, I think, some of the chaos that you set up in your stories. And maybe there's like a almost a feral element. So many of the stories take place in harsh climates 
in very stark settings in nature. And lots of times what happens in nature, there isn't a lot of meaning that can be derived from it, right? I mean, things happen and everyone just has to keep moving on, hopefully moving forward in the in the wake of a natural event, whether it's an animal attacking someone or a natural disaster. So do you think, I don't know, is there something appealing to you about setting stories in really rugged terrain that kind of negates that need maybe for things to tie up neatly or to have some kind of meaning? Well, I think, you know, in fiction, there's lots of different ways to write for fiction, but one of the ways is to create pressure on the characters, sort of increase increasing pressure until something sort of breaks open in the character. And, you know, of course, humans are pressurized by a lot of things, but in my mind, a lot of them are kind of fake. (laughs) They're made up, but the pressure applied by the natural world is oftentimes not fake. (laughs) Cold is not, it, it affects the human body in a way that creates pressure, as does heat, as does thirst, as does hunger, as does uh, injury. All of those things create pressure from the outside that are, are undisputable to the observer, the reader, to me, versus, you know, are you you're worried about your bank account when you're living in a first world country? Like, it's not exactly the same as 40 below zero in Fairbanks or something like that. So I feel like it's a way of removing variables so that you just look at one thing. You, you, you remove uh, other possibilities of escape psychologically. So I think that's, that's why it's attractive to me. Also, I've lived in places like that. So it's very familiar to me, the sort of um, the fragility of humans that become impossible to all mammals. But we're looking at a lot of times humans in these stories. So I feel like that's kind of how the natural world works for me. But I think fundamentally, we live in a world that's very obsessed with information or, you know, this show that I was watching the other day is sort of like causation, causation, causation. And that's something that we're talking about a lot. But what I think of is these layers of thought, like you can think of information plus experience equals knowledge knowledge plus time equals wisdom. And I think that what I seek from literature or film or art or TV show is wisdom. And that is what, to me, what myth or fairy tales or great art is. It's the possibility that we might receive it. And that's what I'm seeking when I write. That's seeking what I'm seeking when I talk to someone, when I meet someone, when I go to a new culture. What What is this place here? And so that's what I hope that I, even if it's disturbing, I guess, you know, we, we are quite safe. Humans are quite safe now, uh, generally in our lives, you know, on a historical sort of timeline. So if I rattle myself or rattle the reader, if something might gestate inside me or the reader that might produce wisdom someday, that's what I'm after. There's a there's a great image in one of the stories, the first story in the book of bugs smashing onto a, a door and relentlessly in the in the summer in Alaska. And I guess that ties in with that this reminder that there's something out there and you know that it's not necessarily on your side. And you know, I very much got the, the sense of that in that the first story, this harsh Alaskan landscape that you describe so well and the people trying to make their way in it. And I, I know you've told us uh, hinted at this, but I wonder if you could tell us 
a bit about your experience in Alaska. I'm assuming you've lived there from from reading the story. Yeah, I lived there for a long time. I lived there for 17 years and, you know, not myself, but, you know, helped build a cabin in the woods. And I spent, you know, all the years before cell phones walking in the forest there where bears lived and moose live. And I turned into a different person there. I had grown up in Peoria, Illinois, in the city, and I was a potter. I lived in the woods and made pottery where you couldn't see a light from another home or a car, or you couldn't hear a highway, and you're just in this aspen forest. And I used to walk up this beautiful mountain every day. And in the wintertime, I would snowshoe up and I would take a little sled and I would sled down this mountain with my dog. And of course, the people there, it's self-selecting. There's, of course, Native people who have lived there for a long time, but the vast majority of the people that you meet are from other places. And going there for this experience of encountering the natural world where you you feel small. And if you break your leg walking up a hill like that back then, because I didn't have a phone, but still now you can certainly do that anywhere, many, many places still, you're going to die. <laughs> yeah, we live now in the desert. If you don't bring water and your car breaks down, you could die. So I feel like the people who go to live in a place like that often are going there to encounter the power of the natural world and what it makes you feel like and what it makes you think about. I didn't know that's why I went, but you find out why you go places sometimes after you arrive and after you've been there for a long time. And and the thrill of being a prey species or the thrill of being fragile, even, even when you can drive to town and go get your milk, which the first people who went to these places or the native people, of course, were much tougher, much, much tougher. Robin, tell us about the title of the collection. Yeah. Okay. So that's a crazy title, Get Them Young, Treat Them Tough. Tell Nothing, which of course is too big for a cover of a book, (laughs) but we kept it. I got that from my grandmother. My New England grandmother used to tell us grandkids, especially the girls, to get them young, treat them tough, tell nothing. So we always grew up saying this phrase. Everyone in my family knows this phrase. It slid into one of the stories, which happens to pretty much everything that I ingest as a human ends up in one of my stories. Everyone who lives with me knows that I'm always listening. But one of my friends and actually eventually just looked it up and it comes, it's a it's a mutation of a title from a 1951 song that's a very jaunty song and it's a totally misogynist song. <laughs> you guys, it's, it's about how to get a woman and you should get him young, treat him tough, tell him nothing. If she's not obeying you, you should uh... get him young, treat him tough, tell him nothing. And so it's and it's really ironic that it was came from my sweet grandmother because she was such a badass feminist, but she would never have admitted that she was a feminist. And we got in arguments about whether she was a feminist, whether I was a feminist. But um, that's where the title comes from. That's a great title mm-hmm. and a great story about grandma. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, Robin, I want to thank you for being with us today on Across the Pond. It's really been Great. I feel like we kind of are growing with you as a writer. So I really (laughs) hope you'll promise to come and talk to us about your next book whenever that's going to come around, probably not too long knowing you. But it's been a real pleasure to have you. And I want to recommend to everyone to run out to their local independent bookstore 
and buy a copy of Robin McLean's Get Em Young, Treat Em Tough, Tell Em Nothing. It's published by And Other Stories, and it's a nomination for the 2022 Republic of Consciousness Prize. Thank you, Robin. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. And um, hopefully it won't be too long before I come knocking on your door again. We can't wait. Thank you.